Well, uh, happy Palm Sunday. I guess, I guess that's a greeting. Uh, I don't know how uh, new Palm Sunday may be to some of you. Some of you have grown up in the church. You understand Palm Sunday. Some, this may be new. Um, Palm Sunday, the, the memory I have on, in fact, I think I have somebody who's going to help me with an illustration. Tony, where are you with your palm frond? Tony, are you still in here? Okay, I'm not seeing him, but Tony came in with a palm frond today, and that's the memory that I have of uh, as, as kids came into church on Palm Sunday and the church that, that I was part of uh, in my teenage years, they'd all be given a palm frond, and then there'd be that point of the service where they all would raise their palm fronds and shout, uh, Hosanna, and, and usually there would, there would be an altercation with a couple kids hitting their, each other with their palm frond. Usually my kids were involved in that. There's a palm frond right there. There we go. There we go. There's, there's an illustration of that. So um, I also remember maybe, uh, again, you have a memory of this, that uh, sometimes you take two stalks of palm frond, two fronds, I guess, and, and make a cross out of them. Uh, I, I didn't really understand growing up what was the significance of the palms. You may or may not know this, but this comes from various places in the Gospels, including since we're in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 11, this is what was believed to have happened as Jesus entered Jerusalem on the Sunday immediately preceding his crucifixion and his resurrection. We don't know for sure that it was palms, but uh, we're told in Mark 11 verse 8 that many people uh, cut out of the fields, cut, cut some, some plants, and use those and lay them out ahead of him as he rode in humbly on a donkey and waved them. And Probably the, the most accurate interpretation of that is that was probably palm fronds. So we do that to commemorate Jesus entering Jerusalem. And while there's many things that we could say uh, about Palm Sunday, I would say one of the most significant sta- that stands out to me and relevant for what we're going to talk about today is it commemorates the beginning of Passion Week. Now, again, here's another term that if you didn't grow up in church, you may wonder, what does that mean, Passion Week? What, what, did, what was the meaning of behind the, the title of uh, that Mel Gibson movie uh, a number of years back, The Passion of the Christ? We in our culture have narrowed the meaning of passion down to intense feeling or even sometimes erotic feeling, but passion comes from the Latin word that means suffering, So it is the suffering of the Christ. It is the week of suffering of Jesus Christ. And in some sense, Jesus suffered from the moment he took on humanity and came into the world. But his suffering, of course, was the most intense in that week leading up to his crucifixion, which we are going to commemorate in our Good Friday service this coming Friday at at 6.30. So what is it, since we're not in Mark 11 yet, and I'm not skipping ahead to that today, what is it that is the relationship between Palm Sunday and the beginning of Christ's suffering and where we actually are in the Gospel of Mark, beginning Mark chapter 9 today, what we see that is known as his transfiguration? I I couldn't have done this. I don't have the ability to do this, but God in His providence lined it up that there is a most significant connection between the transfiguration that we're looking at today 
and the beginning of Passion Week, the beginning of Christ's suffering in chapter 11 that we're even preparing for this coming Easter weekend. And so we're going to look today at the first eight verses of Mark chapter 9 at the transfiguration and the ways in which really it prepares us for what we're going to commemorate Friday night and ultimately celebrate on Sunday morning on Resurrection Sunday. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open to Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. I'll be reading the first eight verses. Then Jesus said to them, speaking to his disciples here, I assure you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up on a high mountain that was probably Mount Hermon. None of the gospel writers tell us for sure what mountain that was, but In the passage that John Andrew preached from last week, they were in the area of Caesarea Philippi, that is the high mountain near there, Mount Hermon. That was probably where they were. He led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transformed or transfigured before them. And here comes the human description, the, 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 the best attempt of a human being, Mark, hearing the eyewitness accounts, no doubt, of Peter, to to try and put into words what it was that he experienced, that he witnessed. His clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because typical of Peter, he did not know what to say since they were terrified. Verse 7 indicates this happened cutting off Peter's blundering comments. A cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Then suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus alone. A significant event. Nothing else like it, really, in Scripture. And at a very strategic place in the Gospel of Mark. This is really the turning point between the first half and the second half of the Gospel of Mark. Everything after about chapter 8 points to Jerusalem, points to the cross, And so it is very significant that God in his providence determined that this should be the timing of this event. I think in understanding it, first of all, we need to understand a little bit about what happened. The gospel writer's descriptions are very brief, very sparse, but we can can get a few details. But even more importantly, what did it mean? I mean, what did it mean to those first disciples? What was significant about them? What did it mean to early Christians? Mark's writing, his original audience were believers who were living, in many cases, under Roman persecution. These are men and women who were suffering, were being persecuted, in some cases being tortured, imprisoned, and even put to death for their faith. What did the transfiguration mean to them? And then really for us today, maybe in some ways the the most ultimate question for you and me, what does it mean for us? I mean, we don't yet live in a time, at least in our culture, where Christians are openly persecuted. 
and face death and face imprisonment for their faith, but we live in a time when that happens in many places in the world. It's happening in places like Sudan and uh, North Korea, some places. uh, You can think of all the different countries where that kind of persecution is going on. What does it mean for our brothers and sisters in Christ who even this morning while we worship here freely are suffering for their faith, are imprisoned for their faith? And even though that level of persecution and oppression has not yet come into our culture, we live in a time when our culture is becoming increasingly hostile towards Christ and those who follow him. As that continues to darken, as that continues to spread, that oppression, what does the transfiguration mean to you and me? What does it mean if the Lord tarries and does not return? What does it mean for our children and our grandchildren? Well, let's look at what happened, first of all. Uh, Again, the details are sparse, which is typical of Mark. But looking at verse 2, here's what we know what happened. Jesus was transformed or transfigured. The Greek word that that Mark uses there is a a word that you may recognize. It's, It's basically the same word we get our word metamorphosis from. Metamorphous meaning to change in form. And that's, that's what, what really these three men witnesses, the, a change in form. How was it that they saw Jesus change in form? We see that in verse 3. And again, Mark is, I believe, attempting to use human language to discuss something that is heavenly that really human language is inadequate to fully describe. But here's his best attempt. His clothes became radiant, intensely white. Again, the word that Mark chooses there for radiate, radiant, it means to sparkle. It means to shine. It, it's the same word that is used in numerous places in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe a star and its brilliance. You know, you get out from the ambient light of the Memphis metropolitan area. You get out in the country on a clear night, and you see all the beautiful stars. And some of those brightest stars, they, they almost seem to throb with their brilliant light. And, and we're, we're witnessing them from millions of light years away. And yet there is a brilliance that we can see even at that distance. Imagine being even closer to the brilliance of a star. That is the the level of brilliance that Mark is trying to describe here. He goes on to say that, um, uh, well, well, really what was going on here is, 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 is God, as much as we can tell, God is enveloping Jesus, uh, not, not just not his clothes, just his clothes, but enveloping Jesus with really the brilliance that, that any of us would see if right now we were standing in heaven looking at Jesus. I think what was going on is for a brief moment that that veil of humanity that Jesus took upon himself, that veil is parted, that veil is lifted, and they are able to see Jesus in all his heavenly glory and brilliance like if we could see him right now standing at the right hand of the Father where he is, we would see that. Now, we'll comment more on the significance and meaning of that in a minute, but let's look at verse 4. It was not just Jesus. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they, Elijah and Moses, were talking with Jesus. Think of your Bible chronology here. Moses and Elijah lived centuries before this event, this transfiguration, happened. So how is it that 
the disciples are now seeing Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus. What, what they are not seeing is a reincarnation of Moses who had died and Elijah who had been taken up with God. What they're not seeing is some form of the ghosts of Moses and Elijah. No, what I believe they're saying, seeing, what, I, what most Bible scholars believe they're seeing is is really heaven opened up to them. This is, this is the saints around the throne. And, and for whatever reason, God limited it to these two saints. But they are seeing Christ in heaven as he is now worshiped by the saints. Now, why Moses? Why Elijah? Uh, again, we don't fully know. None of the gospel writers explain this. What we do know is they are both significant figures. We, we might even call them eschatological figures, meaning that these two men were used by God to significantly point to what is yet to come. Moses, you know, as the first deliverer of of Israel, he was the lawgiver, but Moses pointed to what is to come. Moses, in Deuteronomy 18.15, promised that that God would send uh, not just another prophet, but the prophet. God would send the ultimate prophet, God would send at the end of time one who who would come who would supersede all other prophets that God would send. And it may very well be that Moses' presence there was to say, here he is, here he is, to affirm that Jesus is the one who had been promised to usher in God's kingdom. Elijah, similarly, Elijah had come and been taken up by God into heaven without dying, but But Malachi records that at the end of time, before God ushers in his final kingdom, God would send Elijah again to prepare the people for God's kingdom. And it's as if Elijah was there saying, he is the one you're to prepare for. Here is the king. Here is the king, the culmination of God's coming kingdom. Mark records that they were talking with Jesus. What were they talking with Jesus about? Mark doesn't tell us. Luke gives us a hint. Luke in Luke 9.31 says they spoke with Jesus about his departure, which he was about to bring fulfillment in Jerusalem. And that's kind of a wordy way of saying they were speaking to Jesus about the fact that, Jesus, you're going to Jerusalem, and you're going to the cross, and you are going to die, and you're going to go to the Father before you are resurrected again. We don't know the content of that conversation, but might it very well have been that they are encouraging him, that Jesus being fully divine is also fully human. He's taken on humanity. He knows he's going to face suffering and death, and they are encouraging him as great saints. They are giving him strength to follow through with that journey to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. I think it's, uh, it's interesting, too, that Well, we'll come to that later. There's meaning even in the fact that the disciples could recognize these two men who'd lived centuries before they came. Let's go on with the facts here. Verse 7, a cloud appeared. And again, not not every reference to a cloud in, in, in Scripture is maybe significant, but many are. Particularly when we look at the Old Testament, there is the sense of what's called the Shekinah glory. God revealing himself in a form that human beings can see. If we were told in Scripture, if, a, if we look at God face to face, we would die. So God reveals himself in a glory cloud, the Shekinah 
glory cloud. And, and that is the, the Old Testament symbol of God's presence, of God's glory. So as this cloud overshadows them, even overshadowing, that word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus 40 and 1 Kings 8 to describe the way that God's presence as a cloud filled first the tabernacle and then the temple. God makes his presence manifest in the Shekinah glory cloud. And then a voice comes from the cloud. The voice is God's voice, and the voice acknowledges, this is my beloved son, acknowledges that Jesus, as we'll see the significance of this in a minute, is the son of God. What does it mean? Again, there's, I think, levels of meaning depending on who the audience is. There is meaning for those three disciples who were there and the disciples who waited down at the bottom of the mountain. There is meaning for this transfiguration for first century Christians who are suffering. There is meaning today for us, for you and me, that this is not just some historical event. For the disciples, those three men being Jewish, they would have seen, if not immediately as they reflected on it, they would have seen this sounds very familiar. They would have seen parallels with a significant event in Israel's history with God appearing to Moses in Exodus 24 and Exodus 34 on Mount Sinai. Look at the comparisons. Look at the parallels that we see between God appearing to Moses on Mount Sinai and God now in this transfiguration. First of all, both events occurred on a high mountain. Mount Sinai in Exodus 24 and 34, Mount probably Mount Hermon here. Secondly, these events happen after six days. That stands out to me because Mark has really ignored any timing, any mention of the passage of time, his first eight chapters. And suddenly, at the beginning of chapter 9, he gets very precise, and he says, after, nine, after six days. I think that's a direct parallel to Exodus 24, where God took six days to prepare Moses before he revealed himself to him on the top of Mount Sinai. In both cases, there is an overshadowing cloud, that Shekinah glory cloud, that that God could not reveal himself to Moses face to face without Moses dying, but he revealed himself in an enveloping, overshadowing cloud. And God similarly could not reveal himself to the disciples, but did so in an overshadowing cloud. And finally, I think there's even a parallel in the radiant light that's part of this scene. Now, Jesus was transfigured. The light emanated from him. That was not the case with Moses. But Moses being exposed to God's glory, his face temporarily glowed. That, that glow, that, that radiant glow faded over time. But uh, there is some similarity there. What is, what is, is this just coincidence that these line up? No, this is what I believe we see often in Scripture called a typology, where God does something at a particular point in redemption history that has meaning and significance, powerful meaning and significance then, but it also prepares and points to something even greater that God's going to do. So what God did on Mount Sinai and giving the law to Moses and all that occurred in Exodus 24 through 34, it was highly significant, not only for Judaism, but for the foundations of Christianity. But it did more than that. It points to this, this point, this transfiguration. 
it gives us a frame, a reference to understand even what is the meaning of all this is happening. What is it that we're supposed to understand about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, because of all of this? So what does it mean? What is the meaning? There's many things we could pick out. Let me just pull a few threads in the remaining time this morning. All of this signifies, it means that Jesus is really divine. Jesus is really God the Son. If you've been a believer for a while, that, that may seem, you know, like, like accepted knowledge to you, but at this time, the disciples were still getting that wrong. Peter still calls Jesus rabbi here instead of a term acknowledging his divinity. We've seen leading up in chapter 8 still misunderstandings about who he really is. And what they do, we do today. There are many, many people, even people who spend every Sunday in church who see Jesus as a good man, see Jesus as a great man of God, but do not fully understand in their heart as well as in their minds that Jesus is divine. He is truly the second person of the Godhead. And yet we see that in the indication of, first of all, this radiant light, this, this intensely white brilliance because that's how God often appeared in the Old Testament. Daniel 7, 9, one of the key passages, God appears to Daniel as the ancient of days that, that Daniel sees as a figure clothed in clothing that is white as snow. The psalmist writes of God in Psalm 104 that he wraps himself in light as in a robe. That is the image of God in the Old Testament, the image of brilliant light. And that is the image that Jesus the Christ picks up in the New Testament, Hebrews 1, 3. He, Christ, is the radiance of God's glory. It's the image that John the Apostle sees in that vision in Revelation of, of what Jesus will finally be when he returns to establish his kingdom. His head and hair were white as snow. This is not just a coincidence, this comparison. This is part of God's meaning that he wants the disciples to understand. He wants all of us to understand that Jesus and God are the same. They are the first and second persons of the Trinity. The transfiguration also means that Jesus is absolutely unique. There is no one like him. And again, that may seem obvious to some of you, but look at how Peter at first misunderstands what he's seeing in verse 5. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for uh, Moses and one for Elijah. Peter, like many of us, blunders, and in his fear and his nervousness and his anxiety, he speaks when he should probably remain silent like many of us do. He comes across with good intentions. I, I want to honor all three of you. I want to I build a memorial. I want to build a tabernacle where we can worship all three of you. But what is the, the misunderstanding in that? Peter puts all three on the same plane. Peter makes Jesus equivalent to Moses and Elijah. But that is not the case. As great as Elijah and Moses are, they do not share God's glory with Jesus. Only Jesus is transfigured here. Moses is not transfigured. Elijah is not transfigured. The voice here speaks only of Jesus. It does not venerate or honor Moses or Elijah. Only Jesus remains in verse 8 
after all of this, after the cloud clears. And so God speaks from the cloud in verse 7, correcting Peter's misunderstanding. This is my beloved son. Moses and Elijah were servants, great servants of God. Jesus is more than a servant. Jesus is God's son, the second person of the Trinity. Only Jesus is the absolutely unique son of God. And then there's the command, listen to him. that, That command seems strange because if you read the different gospel accounts of this, Jesus never is recorded as speaking up on top of that mountaintop during the transfiguration. So what is it they're supposed to listen to? We don't know for sure, but I think it points back to the passage that John Andrew preached last week. I think of what it was that Jesus began to say to them in chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus began to tell his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and even die before he would be resurrected. And you remember What followed Jesus beginning to talk about that? If you were here last week or if you have read that, the disciples did not want to hear that. Peter speaking for them tried to, Jesus, don't talk about that. Don't talk about that. For which Jesus had to rebuke him. They didn't want to hear that kind. But now the voice tells them they must listen to him. They must listen to him as he prepares them for what is to come, what has to come that the Son of God must suffer, the Son of God must die so that he can be resurrected, so that he can accomplish the work for our salvation, so that the kingdom of God can be open to us. What does it all mean for the disciples? Why this event now? Jesus knew they would be overwhelmed by his suffering and by his death. And so they needed something to hang on to. They, need, they needed a vision. Maybe part of that vision was uh, seeing Moses and Elijah. Isn't it interesting how these two characters lived centuries before the disciples lived, and yet they recognized them. They recognized them. They knew who they were, even though they had never seen them in the course of their mortal lives. How is that? I believe it's what Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians 13. I I believe it's verse 12 where he says, when I am in the presence of Jesus, I will fully know that there's a way in which when God brings us into his kingdom, we will have knowledge and sight and perception that we don't presently have. And to me, that is great encouragement, particularly when I think about those who I love who have died who have died in the Lord and no longer present, and I no longer get to see them face to face, it means that not only will I be reunited with them, but even in their glorified state, I will recognize them. You will recognize those who have died and gone on before you if they know Christ and you know Christ. And even more, I think it indicates since Peter and James and John had never seen Moses and Elijah, and yet they recognized them. I think it indicates that we will recognize all believers around the throne. All will know each other. All will perceive who each other really is in a way that we can't even imagine now. That is one encouragement perhaps to it. But I think even the greatest encouragement is what they saw of Jesus there. Remember, these are men who in just a few short days would go to Jerusalem, would see him enter in triumph on Palm Sunday, 
And then the week went downhill, would go downhill from there. They would see him arrested. They would see him mocked and scourged and beaten. They would see him crucified painfully on a cross. All of their hope for what the Messiah would be would evaporate. These were men who would be driven into despair. Jesus knew all this. Jesus knew this would be potentially overwhelming for them. And so God in his graciousness said, I am going to give you a glimpse. I'm going to give you a vision for what lies after that. It doesn't end with the crucifixion. It doesn't even end with the resurrection or the ascension. It ends, or really the end leads to the beginning, when Jesus Christ finally returns, his final return, to establish his kingdom for eternity. That is the glimpse that I think they're seeing there, not just of the resurrected Christ, but of the returning, reigning Christ. And so when he says in chapter 9, verse 1, I assure you there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. That's not saying to the disciples, none of you are going to die till I return. No. It's saying I'm going to give at least three of you, I'm going to give you a preview. I'm going to give you a glimpse of what that will look like. You will not die until you see a glimpse of what it will be like when I finally return in power, in glory, to establish my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In the transfiguration, Jesus gives them, his disciples, a glimpse of the kingdom of God coming in power, of his coming and reign, coming to reign. It's a brief preview of what Jesus speaks about more in Mark 13 when Jesus says, At the end of time, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven." Let me ask you this morning, it's a rhetorical question, but answer it in your heart. Do you believe that Jesus Christ will return? Do you believe that your salvation really, in some sense, is not complete because we await the coming of his kingdom? That that's really what we've been saved for? That this earth is just a temporary passing through to become part of the kingdom of God? You believe that Jesus is returning as the king to reign over his kingdom? We don't know when that day is. We don't know how soon it is coming. It could, it's imminent. It could be any time. Or like in the case of the disciples, it could be many, many years. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is returning again? Do you believe that Jesus Christ, when he returns, he will cause all of the nations, all of the governments, all military forces, all economic powers, all political powers to bow in subjection to him as king? Do you believe that Jesus Christ, when he returns, will cause every person on earth, even those who presently deny him, even those who presently revile him, to bow in honor before him, to acknowledge him as the Son of Man coming in great power and glory. 
That is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. That is part and parcel of what it means to follow Christ. And frankly, many days, that is the only hope that gives us the ability to endure and persevere in our Christian lives. That's the case of the disciples. The disciples would go on to see not only Jesus' suffering, but the disciples themselves. Even after the resurrection, many of them would suffer. Many of them, most of them were martyred. Only one or two died a natural death. They needed a vivid image in mind of what was to come. They needed to know that the, the crucifixion of Jesus wasn't the end. They needed to know that their own suffering and death was not the end. Those early Christians in Rome and, and other places in the Roman Empire who were suffering persecution, they needed a vision. They needed the transfiguration vividly stuck in their heads in order to endure what they faced. And we need the vision of the transfiguration as well. We need this vivid image in our minds. We may not yet face the kind of suffering and persecution that the early disciples faced or that our brothers and sisters in Christ face in places like North Korea and Sudan, but I believe it's coming. Our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to the claims of Christ, and that hostility is now morphing from people just turning their back on Christ to people ac actually pursuing, pers persecuting, oppressing those who would follow, who would faithfully follow Christ. What will it mean as our culture becomes increasingly darker, increasingly more hostile to Christ? What will it mean to your ability to endure, your ability to persevere? If what you hang on to is an experience in a worship service, that will not get you through. You and I need something greater. We need that picture of Jesus Christ returning in all of His power and glory. We need to hang on to that especially as we face whatever suffering God and His sovereign providence decides that each of us should face. We need what Peter talked about in his second epistle. Peter, who was an eyewitness of this, said, you know, it was awesome to be an eyewitness of the transfiguration, but we, and he's talking to us, we now have the prophetic word made more sure He's saying what we have in Scripture testifying of who Jesus is in his glorified state and what he will be as the returning king, that is even more sure than his own eyewitness testimony. We have, he says, the prophetic word made more sure, which is like a lamp shining in the darkness of our doubts and fears until that day dawns and Christ rises like the morning star in all of his glorious brilliance. So I pray, and I encourage you to pray, that, that key line out of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. I love the words, and I'll close with this, of Nicole Mullins as she, she, she encapsulates that prayer, that longing for Jesus' glorious return in her song, Kingdom Come. Our Father in heaven, Please hear us now, we pray. We need you more than ever in a million different ways. There are wars on every land, poverty inside of man. The earth is groaning from within. Deliver us again. 
Deliver us from the evil that devours. Consume it with your power. We implore you now this hour, we pray, thy kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus, thy will be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Jesus, set up your throne and let thy kingdom come. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, that's, that's our prayer. That uh, New Testament word, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. I, I know especially those who are younger here, they think of all there is to look forward to in life. And we, we appreciate, Lord, the good things of life, of, of relationships and marriage and children and family and the many blessings we have in this world. And yet all that pales in comparison to what eternity will be in your kingdom when you reign as glorious king, when we are reunited with our loved ones, where we see all the saints and know them, where most of all we're drawn to your glory. We see you in all your majesty and all your power. Lord, uh, we don't live on the mountaintop. Uh, We live in the valleys most days. And there may be some here this morning who feel they are in the valley of some kind of suffering. Maybe it's physical suffering. Maybe it's relational suffering. Um, Lord, maybe it's financial suffering. Give them, give us a vision of you on the mountaintop, Lord. May we see you beyond the cross, beyond the resurrection, to see you as king. May we grip on that. May we cling to that. We worship you, Lord Jesus, as our coming king. Amen.